Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you this morning and thankful to, to be here with you uh, and hope that you are having a wonderful Lord's Day. I hope that you're having a wonderful Father's Day, uh, a wonderful not currently raining day. Um, I'm just so thankful that we have uh, this family to be a part of, this family to be gathered together with. I, I can tell you, I can have a week that drags me down, that makes me tired, that wears me out, that just uh, can be so rough, but to be gathered back together again with you all here on these Sunday mornings and afternoons and Wednesday nights, it always encourages me and, and picks me back up, and I thank you all for that, and I thank God for that as well, because that is by His design, the family of Christ. I want to talk a little bit about Christ this morning, and I want to have us kind of consider the ways in which we come to Christ. And maybe this seems like a lesson that would be very geared towards someone who is thinking about that, thinking about making that decision to come to Him, to, to receive the healing that He offers uh, in, in our spiritual lives, to receive the power that comes through having a relationship with God, uh, and, and that indwelling of the Spirit, and the putting off of the old man, the putting on of this new creature in Christ. And yes, all of those things are true, but I want to challenge us this morning to look at our own lives and ask ourselves, am I on the right way to Christ? Am I making progress towards drawing closer to the King of the Kingdom of God? And I want us to do that while looking at the book, uh, continuing our study in the book of Mark and looking and reading through a section from chapter 12. In this section, we're going to see several things happening in the life of Christ that, again, are, are happening because of those who oppose Him, those who are holding on to their position, to their power, to their ways. This is what I want to do. This is how I want to do it. And I'm just not satisfied with the gospel that you are bringing, the good news of Jesus Christ is not enough for me. And so I want to read about some things that are happening there and make some application that I think can be useful to us today, starting in verses 13 through 17. Let's read that together. It says, Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about, uh, and care about no one. Now that verse in the New King James is not maybe the best way to translate that. Matter of fact, he's not saying that, they, that he cares about no one, but that he is not concerned with the thoughts of other people. What they think about him is not going to depict what he says. They say, we know that you are true and you care about no one for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he knew their hypocrisy. Said to them, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God, God's. And they marveled at him. So what we see here right off the bat is very interesting to me. You see a group of people that don't typically get along. The Pharisees and the Herodians, and they're teaming up. Now, it's not that they don't get along as if they just outright hate each other, but they morally 
stand for things that don't mesh very well. The Herodians were, were very political, politically minded. They were uh, huge supporters of King Herod. They have this great deal of mindset in the current political affairs of the day. The Pharisees are going to be much more spiritually minded, trying to have that mindset in the keeping of the law and the traditions of the elders. They don't typically go hand in hand, and yet they team up to try and trap Jesus. And we can see why when we look at what's been going on. Over and over again, Jesus has been exposing the Pharisees for what they are, hypocrites. And they're not winning any battle here, and they know it. They know we are, we are getting just very one-sidedly defeated by this man. Maybe if we can't trap him in things of our law, we can trap him with things of the law of, of Rome, things of the law of the political scene. And so they bring the Herodians in to ask this question. But notice how they start. Verse 14 begins this demonstration of dishonesty that just drips from their tongue. No real, real faithful talk is coming out of their mouth. They begin looking to trap Him and say, Teacher, we know that you're true. Teacher, we know that you say things not based upon the, the opinions of the people around you, but based upon God. They say, Teacher, we know you're a really good, wise, smart guy. That's not what they think at all. It's the opposite of what they think. They hate this man. This man has constantly called them a hypocrite. Pointed out where they're wrong. They have no love for this guy. Uh, and, and this is just nothing but a dishonest heart coming out of them to say, why don't you come have this conversation with us? And I'll tell you, we should understand that a conversation where right off the bat you know someone is trying to trap you is not an easy conversation to have. Going to speak to someone and you know the only reason they're listening to you is to find out where you're wrong. The only reason they're listening to you is to find out how they can come up to you later and say, this is what you got wrong. This is, this is where it wasn't right. Right off the bat, that's a hard conversation to have. Jesus knows these people are trying to trip me. They're not really listening to hear and to learn. And so listen to how blunt He is when He talks to them. Seeing their dishonesty, he says, just bring me a coin. I'm not going to get into laws. I'm not going to get into the Mosaical law, the, the law of Rome. I'm not going to get into that. Just bring me a coin. Show me a coin. That, that, uh, denarius. Bring it on out. They bring it out, and he says, look who's on it. This isn't rocket scientist, guys. Well, look who's on it. If it's got Caesar's likeness on it, give it to Caesar. But in implication, what he's telling them then is if it's got God's likeness on it. If it has God's image on it, give it to God. And that should immediately draw to our minds passages uh, such as Genesis chapter 1. We need to give God what He is owed. And when we flip back to the creation account to the very beginning, what our, base, uh, the, our faith is based off of, what we find is God created everything the heavens and the earth, the seas, the land, the plant life, animals, mankind. And when He created man, He looked at them and said, let's make them, let's make man in our image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. They will bear our likeness. And so we need to be given to God what is owed to God. We need to give Him our lives. 
We need to give Him our hearts. We need to give Him everything, which we're going to see being brought up yet again in just a few verses. This is where Jesus is bringing them to. And, and what's fascinating to me in this is none of this escapes. Even though they're trying to trip Him, uh, trying to trap Him, none of this escapes His eyes. He's not blind to their dishonesty. He's not blind to their hard hearts. Now, they may think He is. They may think we've got Him. There's no way to answer this question. Because if you say, uh, don't give it to Rome, uh, don't, don't support Rome, well, Rome's going to come and they're going to... We, we can go to them and say, look at this guy. He's trying to cause an up, uprising, a rebellion. He's telling the people they shouldn't pay Caesar's taxes and we're going to kill him. If he says, do give it to Rome, he can turn all the people against him and say, look, he's, he says he's the king, the, the Messiah, but he wants you to support Rome. There's no answer. Jesus knows that. None of this is hidden from him. His eyes are open to their hearts. And so he doesn't fool with them at all. All he says to them, and if we were just to sum it up, is quit being so dishonest. Quit being so fake. If it belongs to Caesar, give it to him. But you know what belongs to God. Give that to him. And so following this, we have another account. Some of the Sadducees decide they're going to take their turn at trying to test this guy and trap this guy. And so in verse 18, it says, Then some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and, le and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should, raise, or should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying he left no offspring. The second took her, and he died, and nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife shall she be? For all seven had her as a wife. That's really hard to read. That's really hard to follow. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> Jesus responds to them, verse 24, He answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead, they, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. So again, looking at this passage, find out what's going on here. What is, what is actually happening as we read all this, we find the Sadducees showing up. They've, they've said, okay, the Pharisees, the Herodians, they just came and tried, and he really basically put them in their place. Maybe we'll give it a shot. We're going to come, and we're going to ask him about the resurrection that we don't even believe in. We don't believe in this at all. We don't believe that there's a spiritual realm. We don't believe that there's life after death. We don't believe in a resurrection, but we're going to ask this very convoluted question about the resurrection. Why was that? Why ask a question like that? They're trying their best to disprove what he has been teaching, what he has been talking about. They're trying their best to show the absurdity. How can there be this life after death with things like marriage? That is going to just prove that there cannot possibly be a life after death. And once we have shown how absurd this teaching is, that this man holds to, mind you, then we can show that this man cannot possibly be the Son of God and believe such 
insane things. They're trying their best to disprove what, 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 he is, what, what, what they was commonly believed. And his response to them is a charge. He says, number one, you're mistaken. You're wrong. And here's why. You're wrong because you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Now that, that is a huge problem, not just in their day. That's a problem in our day. That is a huge problem for people in the world. That is a reason. That is the reason why there are so many who lack a faith that actually believes God can do something in their life, that God has power in their lives to bring them from where they are today to where He wants them to be, to transform their lives. <coughs> and the part of the reason that they lack that faith, and part of the reason the Sadducees lack that faith, is because the Sadducees don't know the Scriptures. Now, how can that possibly be? The Sadducees, if you, if you remember who they are, this is basically temple priests. The Pharisees, they're the ones that are they're all about interpreting the law. They're all about taking the traditions of smart men, of rabbis, and saying, okay, this is what this law means. This is what that law means. The Sadducees were the ones that said, no, it's all about the priesthood. It's all about the temple. And so they hold very, very closely to the law and don't add any tradition of men into it. But they also believe that the only inspired writing in the law was the Torah, the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's it. Anything outside of that, all that stuff we read about the judges and the kings and the prophets and all those things, none of that is inspired. Is it important? Yeah, that's our history. But none of that means anything to me. And so, a little shepherd boy becoming king of a nation while it's a nice story, doesn't tell me anything about the power of God to transform people's lives. Thus, they don't understand. They don't know the Scriptures. But not only did they not know it because they had sectioned off parts of the book, parts of the Scripture and say, okay, that, that right there is good, but it's not for me. But the parts that they did know, number one, they did know them. They knew the Torah inside and out. They had memorized it. They, they learned it. They bind it. You know, Deuteronomy 6, they're binding it on their hearts. They know it. But they don't know it. There's a difference between being able to tell me book, chapter, and verse from every single thing that's in here and yet being intimately connected with God's Word on a way that fundamentally changes my worldview. Changes the way I look at the scenarios around me. Changes the way I look at the people around me. He is telling them you don't know the Scriptures. He's not saying you haven't memorized them. He's saying you don't know how, what to do with them. You don't know how to use them. You don't know how to make them a part of your life. And so he quotes Gen, uh, Exodus chapter 3. And again, I think that's fascinating that he quotes Exodus chapter 3 because any other quote that he went to in Scripture, they're going to say, uh-uh, that's not inspired. So he says, all right, I'll use what you believe. I'll start where you are. I'll use Exodus chapter 3 verse 6 and go back here and talk about how God... When he spoke to Moses in the burning bush, he didn't say, I used to be the God of Abraham. I used to be the God of Isaac. I used to be the God of Jacob. No, he used these men who were physically dead at that time. He said, I'm still their God. We still have a relationship. Despite them moving from life into death, they still have a relationship with me. And so I'm not the God of those who have gone before, those who have died. I'm the God of the living. I'm the God that has power and has relationships 
even after someone has left this physical realm. He said, that's the, why, that's the reason why you're wrong. Not because you don't know whose who's wife she's going to be. Not because you don't know what that relationship is going to be. Because you don't know your scriptures. You're wrong because you're not intimately connected with God. You're wrong because you're not intimately connected with His power. And you are therefore greatly mistaken. And so now we've had, the, we've had the Pharisees and the Herodians, they've taken their hand trying to trap him. The Sadducees watch all this and they say, okay, we'll, we'll give this a shot. And then you have what happens next in verses 20 through 34, which is interesting to me. You have this one lone scribe. It says, Then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is here, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, for there is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And now when Jesus saw that He had answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question Him. So again, you have this scribe come up, and he's listening. Man, the tax question, that's a good question. I don't see a way out of that. The, the marriage question, that's a confusing question. Certainly we'll get him with that. And then you have this one scribe come up, and he asks, Who's, what command is the greatest? When we read in other translation, in other gospel accounts, in Matthew's account, what we find is this scribe is doing the same thing that the rest of them were. We, I don't think we should read this and think this guy went, wow, he's really smart. Okay, I've had this burning question my whole life. I'm going to go ask him which one is the greatest. No, in Matthew's account, it reveals to us that this scribe is still trying to trap him, just like the, the, the others had been trying to do as well. Makes me wonder, are they running out of questions? I mean, you have these really thought-based questions like taxation and marriage after death. And then, which command is the greatest? And Jesus just responds, I'll tell you which command is the greatest. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4-5 through and Leviticus 19-18. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, with the very fibers of your being. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Why is this the greatest commandment? It's at the core of all of the law. Even with the Ten Commandments, you break the Ten Commandments down, you have a portion of them reflecting your love for God and the relationship you have with Him, and the remainder of them reflecting your love for your neighbor and the relationship you have with, with, with men, with mankind around you. He says these are the greatest. And the scribe responds back, you're right. You're right. Loving God and loving your neighbors are the greatest. In fact, they are more important they are more than even burnt offerings and sacrifices. What exactly does that mean when he says that? Loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself is more, translated to say much more, than burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
Well, I think to answer that question, we have to stop just for a moment, take ourselves out of 21st century mode and back into 1st century mode, back into the Jewish mindset. What was a burnt offering? What was a sacrifice? Well, it was a way to receive atonement from God. If I hadn't loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, strength, if I hadn't been loving my neighbor, I needed to make atonement for that. So there's one way that, yeah, obviously it's more because it's given, uh, you do these things because you failed to do the first two. So yeah, it would be better if you just always loved God and loved your neighbor and you wouldn't have to do that, but yet you would. They were still called to make burnt offerings and sacrifices, and they were called to make these things in a specific way. You don't just go out and get the lame lamb, the blind, the, the one that has all the spots on it. You don't get the fruit that's got some, some rotten thing, uh, you know, spots on it or, or the, the grain that's got mealy worms in it. You give God the best because what you're doing is you're showing God His worth. Sacrifice, burnt offerings, these are forms of worship in the first century and in and beyond, and before that, this is the way the people showed God their worship and trying to receive atonement from Him. And He's saying here, you know what's more than all that? You know what's more than all of this worship that you give God? Loving Him and loving your neighbor. Doing those things is more important than all of this sacrifice and burnt offerings that you're doing. And when the scribe makes that, that connection, and certainly, I, I don't want to suggest that he's saying worship is not important at all. Worship was commanded. Sacrifices, burnt offerings, these things were commanded. They were required. But what did they do? They reminded the people who God was. And they reminded the people who they were. This is the God that brought us out of Egypt. This is the God that parted the Red Seas. This is the God that led us through the wilderness. This is the God that defeated the inhabitants of Canaan. This is the God that has loved us from the beginning of time. And we are the people who have not. That's what their worship was drawing up in their minds. Who is God and who are we? And what does that need to do to our lives? What changes do we need to make in our lives because of that. And so when this scribe makes this comment, when he sees this, Jesus' response to that is, Amen. <laughs> he says, you got it. You're not far from the kingdom of God. All of this that he says is building a picture for what we're going to read in verses 35-44 through 44 at, a, at another time. I want to look at that sometime later. What I want us to see is Jesus is, is looking at the heart of religious, worshiping people and saying, you're missing it. You think you've got it, but you're missing it. You're not on the right way. You're not coming to the Father. You're not coming to Me in the right manner. And that has great application for us today as well. What is the right way to Christ? Looking at this account right here, looking at what we've learned this morning, I think the first thing that we can honestly say is honesty. The right way to Christ comes through honesty. It comes through looking at ourselves and, and looking at our hearts with an open mind. Notice that they're trying to trap Him and Jesus, this doesn't escape Him at all. 
Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, Everything is open and naked before the eyes of Him that we must give an account before. Jesus' eyes are open to our lives. You might have yourself fooled. You might have me fooled. You might have the church here fooled. You might have the world fooled. Everybody looking at you and they don't see it. But God does. God sees the real you. The true you. And so the right way to come to Christ begins with an honest heart that looks at myself, looks at my actions, looks at my thoughts, and doesn't try to sugarcoat them, and doesn't try to twist that into some form of religion that makes me satisfied. It says, how does God see this? How does Christ see this? We have to stop being dishonest with God. We have to remember that we are made in His image. We are made with His likeness. And what that means is we belong to Him. From the moment we're born, from the moment we're brought into this world, we belong to God. He is owed. We owe ourselves to Him. He deserves all of us. And we have to make a decision then. Am I going to keep stealing from Him? Or am I going to give what belongs to Him to Him? And you use the picture that, that Jesus is, is using here that's been th- you know, kind of set up to trap Him of taxation. I have no idea how much Caesar required as a taxation. I don't know if it was 50%, 30%, whatever it was. But even if it was just 5%, how much of that 5% do you think Caesar required or else he would say, you're stealing from me? I'm going to say that number is easy to figure out. All of it. 100%. He says, I want this much of, of, of a taxation from you. And if you hold any of that back, you're not giving me what is owed. You, that has, it's not hard for us to figure out because that hasn't changed in 2,000 years. The IRS says this is what we expect from you for this year. And if you don't pay it, you're stealing from us. You're not being honest. You're being dishonest. You're not giving us everything that we are owed. Why should we expect any less? Think of what the prophets say when they go to the people and say, look at your sacrifices that you give. Would you give that sacrifice to your governor? He wouldn't be pleased with it. So why would you give it to God? If the government wouldn't be pleased with us giving 50% of what they're owed to them, why should we expect God to be pleased with anything less than everything? We need to know our life belongs to Him. And we need to know that if we're going to come to Him, it comes through an honest look at what we are giving and what we have to give. The next thing that I would consider when we look at the right way to Christ is coming to Christ the right way involves coming to Him through His Word. We need to know the Scriptures, and we need to know the power of God. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. This was part of the mistake that they had made in that day as they knew their Scriptures. I'm telling you, I don't know how many Christians I've met that can quote this book inside and out. I would love to be one of them one day. I can quote some of it. I can quote portions of it. I'd love to be able to quote every single word of it without opening it and have 100% confidence that I'm saying that right. But I also can't tell you how many Christians that can quote this inside and out, how many people in the world that can quote this inside and out and aren't intimately connected with God's Word. They don't do it. They know the Word. Think back to Jesus' uh, illustration on the Sermon on the Mount of the, the rich man and the, the wise man and the foolish man. The wise man is the one who heard the Word of God and acted The foolish man knew it too. He wasn't foolish because he didn't spend any time in the Word. He knew the Word and he didn't do it. The right way to Christ 
is being intimately connected with His Word. There was a time, there was a time in the past era where you would hear people talk about the church and you would say, well, those are just a bunch of Bible-thumping Christians. And it became kind of a derogatory thing. I think in some ways maybe we're even a little bit ashamed of it today. Uh, I'm not. I, I hope that we're not. Because what they were really saying is these people knew their Bibles and they were taking it to the world and saying this is what God wants and they were demonstrating it in their lives as well. We need that in our lives. We need to be Bible-thumping Christians and we need to be honest. We need to not be hypocrites. We need to be able to tell the people, uh, tell the world around us, tell the lost, this is what God desires of you and we need to be doing that ourselves. But when we are like that, when we know God's Word and when we're connected with God's Word, we see God's power. Again, I use the illustration of David. You see a shepherd boy being changed into a king. That didn't happen by his, his might and his cunning wisdom. It happened by the power of God. And you look at people who are lost, addicted in sin, addicted to drugs, caught up in, in lustful desires, have, have language that just would peel the pain off of a building, and you look at them and think that person would never, ever be a good Christian. And then you find them having learned who God is and what that means to them. And you see this change in someone's life that is just mind-blowing. How can someone go from here to here and you start to witness the power of God and you know it? You, you, you hold on to that and you, you allow that in your life as well to crack into your heart and change you as well. We need to be people that through His Word know His Word, are connected to His Word, and are witnessing His power. So many times, so many times people gravitate towards other denominations because they view power there. I want to have a religious, spiritual experience and so I go to the places where I think I will find religious, spiritual experiences where people are rolling on the floor, people are speaking in tongues, people are doing and seeing things that no one else is doing and seeing. And what we're doing is we're robbing the true spiritual experiences, even for sometimes for those of us that are in the church, that are, that are in a sound body of Christ, and yet we, we just go through the mechanics of worship because we forget to notice the power of God that courses through His family's veins. We are His body. And if we are connected to His body, the power in His blood is coursing through our lives, and we're blind to it sometimes because we fail to see that power and the way it transforms people's lives and the way it can transform our lives if we open ourselves up to it. We can't have the problem of the Sadducees. We can, but we shouldn't have the problem of the Sadducees. We need to know our Scripture. We need to know how to use our Scripture. How to apply it to ourselves first before we take it to the world. And we need to remember that there is great power for those of us who follow after God and seek after Him. Thinking of David again, go back and read 1 Samuel 17. Go back and read David and Goliath. I'm going to tell you right now, that doesn't happen with a, a person that doesn't know the power of God. That doesn't happen with a person who doesn't know that God can do great things, that hasn't witnessed it. His eyes were open to, I defeated a bear, I defeated a lion, I defeated these creatures, and it wasn't me, it was God that did that. And so now there's this great mountain of a man in front of me, and I'm going to march out there when all the people of Israel are afraid, and I'm going to tell him that I'm going to cut him up and feed him to the birds. 
That doesn't happen with a young man. That doesn't happen unless he knows something. Something is different about me than everyone else. And what that thing is, is God and His power. So we need to come to God through honesty with ourselves, honesty with what belongs to Him. We need to come with Him through His Word and through His power. And we need to come with Him to Him through true love. Understanding that when we are honest with ourselves about who God is and about who we are, when we are intimately involved with His Word and allowing His power to transform our lives, then we have to understand that that must must impact our lives more than just making a decision to be at worship a couple times a week. It's got to go beyond that. It must go beyond that. Something that I've, I've heard recently and I've been thinking a little bit about, there was a man talking about the importance and the necessity of church. And when he says that, he's talking about worship assemblies, Bible studies, when the congregation gathers together for the purpose of praising God and, and studying His Word. We would say Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, typically for us here at Lake Street. He was talking about that. He says, you must be there. You must be there. And the response that he got was, well, you're telling me that I can't be a Christian if I don't go to church. That's what you're telling me. And that's, this was the, converse, the, the, the kind of situation that I, that I heard this in. And it's got me thinking. Because the argument the guy was making, you're telling me I can't be a Christian and not go to church? Well, he had a point. I can stop coming to church today. It doesn't change the fact that I am a baptized disciple of Christ seeking to follow after Him. That has become my identity. That, I pray, has become your identity. Our identity is to follow after Christ. And I can stop coming to church, and that doesn't change that. The same way that it doesn't change a fish when I reach down into Ryder's fish tank and take it out and set it over here on the counter. It's still a fish. Has it magically changed into something else? It's going to be a dead fish real soon, but it's still a fish. And we should see that in our lives as Christians. I don't have to be a part of the church to be a follower of Christ, but I have to be a part of the church to be a living follower of Christ. We must see the importance of that. We must see the importance of our worship. That this is the way that we learn who God is. When we come together and we sing praises together and we study from His Word and we take the Lord's Supper, we're remembering what He's done, who He is, who we are, and that needs to have a fundamental change in our lives. Worship is incredibly important. Being a part of the church is incredibly important. When you go back to Acts chapter 2, you see that. You can't miss that. That they have become a part of a new community in Christ. Maybe it's because of the word church. Church is not a word that you find in the Scriptures uh, in the original text. It's been added in. We have taken the word ecclesia and said we need a word for that. Because nobody's going to walk around saying ecclesia today, so we're going to use the word church. And that's a fine word to use, but we need to understand what that word originally meant. It meant communities. It meant assemblies. It meant people gathered together with a purpose. There is a new community. You've been taken out of the community of the Jews. You've been taken out of the community of the, of the Greeks, the community of harlots, the community of tax collectors. You've been taken out of these communities and put into a new community with Christ 
as the head. And what did that do to these people? That changed the way they think. Changed the way they act. Daily, they said, we have to be a part of one another. I have to reach out and do something with other people in my community instead of just struggling, stro uh, strolling back out to my old community and being a part of that all day long. I need to somehow still be connected to my new community. And so, yes, I can be a Christian and not be a part of that community, but I'm not going to be a Christian very long. I'm going to die. But I want you to take the flip side of that as well, because that's the easy one. Let's say, speaking to the home crowd here, the choir, you're thinking, I already know that. That's why I'm here. I don't want to die. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to be lost. I want to be connected with that community. So let's take the flip side of that. I'm not taking Ryder's fish out of the tank anymore. Instead, I go outside and I catch a bird and I shove that down in the tank. Does it become a fish? No. It stays a bird. And guess what happens to it? I don't know of any birds that can live very long underwater. Eventually, it's going to die as well. We mark brethren. As I think we should. We mark brethren for neglecting the assemblies of the saints. We look at passages like Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Say, you're not going to, to be here. You're going to choose not to come. We're going to mark you as one walking disorderly. We look at passages like 2 Thessalonians in, in chapter 3, in verse 14. Paul said, mark those. Take note of those who don't obey our words in this epistle. Well, what have his words been in that epistle? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Keep the traditions you've been taught by our word or read in our epistle. What he's saying is submit yourself in obedience to God. Keep the things that you have heard spoke to you about how you come to God and you obey Him and you follow Him. And he's saying if somebody refuses to do that, if they won't keep those things, take note of them. Mark them. And we're really good at that when it comes to the assembly. When it comes to sins that we... we kind of deem as, oh, that's, that's really heinous. But I want to share with you an experience I had earlier this, this very week. Sister Clara Riddle is on hospice care. And the last time I saw her was about three months ago when I told her, I'll see you in a week or so. And then time and life have gotten in the way. Gotten in front of me. Things that really shouldn't have had my attention distracted me from things that I needed to be doing. And so I went back to see her earlier this week and talk with her and find out how she's doing and what I can do to, to help and to encourage her. And as I'm speaking to her, somebody comes in that's been marked as an erring child of God in this assembly. What I find out is they're there all the time. They're visiting this widow in her time of need. They're taking care of her. They're loving her. They're providing for her. And that cut my heart. Because I look at someone like them and say, you're not coming to church like you have to do. And they have very real problems in their lives that need to be fixed. But how many times have I stopped and looked at myself and said, yeah, I'm doing this. But is it a show? Or am I allowing my interaction with God's Word and God's family and God's people to change who I am when I go back out into the world. This is our burnt offerings and our sacrifices. Loving God with all our heart, 
with all our soul, with all our mind and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself is more than sacrifice. Can we be obedient to God and neglect the assemblies of the saints? No. No, we can't be obedient to God and neglect the assemblies of the saints. We also can't be obedient to God and neglect the world around us. Whether it be because of our jobs, our hobbies, our families. Those are the things that were getting in my way, by the way. We're not serving God when we say that I'm going to let those things stop me from doing the things He's commanded me to do. We need to make time. Not just, I, 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 use, I use the example of Claire because that's personal for me. I'm dealing with that. I've, I've experienced that. Jesus is going to bring it up in the very next passage as He talks about the, the scribes and the Pharisees. He says to beware of them in verse 38. Who desire to go, through, go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogue, the best places at feasts, who devour the widow's houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. What he, his point in saying all that, they're all about the show. There's no action behind their facade. There needs to be action in our lives. There needs to be action amongst the things that we can change, the things that we can help, whether that be visiting our widows. There, are, there, there is a very real difficulty for us to visit some of our shut-ins because for a lot of us, we don't know them. They've been gone since before we got here. They've been shut in. But their phone numbers are in our directories. And I know they'll be happy to talk with you and get to know you. And there are many here that do know them. And I'm sure that they'd be happy to go visit with you and introduce you. But that's just one way. Our widows, that's just one thing. There is work that needs to be done in this community. There is work that needs to be done in one another's lives. There are things that, are, that are involved with, with us getting out and being honest with God's Word and showing true love as we come to Christ. And you ask yourself one question. That question is, why did Jesus say all these things? Why did He say all that to these people? He said it because He loved them. He said it because He loves you. Mark doesn't record it, but right after all of this, this is, this is essentially Mark, uh, Matthew 23 where Jesus is pronouncing all these woes to the scribes and Pharisees. These are happening at basically the same time. And Mark doesn't record it, but what's Matthew record in Matthew 23, 37? He says, after saying all of these hard things, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. He says, all I want to do is love you. I want to protect you. I want to shield you. I want to nourish you. I want to draw you close to me and, and, and give you the security you need. That's all I wanted to do. How does He do it? He does it by calling them to do hard things. Things that were against the norm. Things that were not what they had been doing. He says, but would you do it? No. So the question is, will we? Will we come to Christ today? Now, for some of us, that might be coming for the first time. Some of us, that might be returning to Him, recognizing that maybe we've been in it for the show. That doesn't need to be the case. We can trust in His Word, knowing that it is the power of God to bring about salvation for mankind. 
And knowing that if we would come to Him in the ways that we, which He has called us to do, through honesty and through intimacy and through love, that we're not far from the kingdom. It's not a great trek. And He's there to help and, and, and ready to usher us in. So have we submitted ourselves to Him? Have we bowed ourselves before the great King? Peter would later tell the crowds in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, say, if you want to feel that power, if you want to receive forgiveness of sins, if you want to follow after the true King, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then repent, turn from your ways, turn from the things you're doing today that are against His will, submit to Him, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Just like Jesus' words haven't changed, the solution to our problems hasn't changed either. If there's something that we can do here today to help you, assist you in whether it be first coming to Christ and submitting to Him as your Master or returning to the Master to do His will. Won't you please let it be known as we stand and as we sing.